I wonder what you think about authority. Uh, Matthew 8, 8, 9 and 10 uh, has been deliberately put together by Matthew to demonstrate the authority of Jesus. We've had the Sermon on the Mount comes just before it, 5 to 7. Uh, authoritative teaching from Jesus about what it looks like to live under his rule, to live in his kingdom. Uh, and then Matthew has collected these set of stories together uh, to show us his authority in a number of areas. We've just seen his authority to heal last couple of weeks with blanks. Uh, healing outcasts uh, from Jewish society, a leper, centurion, and then a woman, Peter's mother. Uh, next week, we're going to see his authority over creation as he calms a storm. We'll then see his authority over demons, his authority to forgive sins. Uh, the way Matthew's compiled his gospel is very deliberate. He pulls these stories together. It's thematic in that way. And here, he's saying to us, this is uh, Jesus, the authoritative king. Uh, and if you're like me, you read these stories, and particularly these words which John just read just now, um, and they seem pretty hard work. It's a pretty hard word from Jesus, and we constantly look to contextualise them. Uh, what I mean by that is if you're like me, you look to soften these words. Um, you look to keep these words at arm's distance, go, well, that was for these specific guys then. But they're here for us now, today. We try our hardest to not take these words at face value. Because it's a hard question. The fundamental question being asked of us today is, will we live our lives totally under the authority of Jesus? And authority, it's got a negative connotation, doesn't it, nowadays? But it's fundamentally a good thing. The Bible tells us again and again, it's a glorious thing to live under someone's authority. People, though, despise today the thought of submission, the thought of living under someone else's authority. And that's so like our world and what it ever does. Isaiah tells us that good people, uh, so people will call what is good evil and call what is evil good. We twist what is good. Paul said we, uh, we distort, we twist, we're crooked uh, in how we view things. Take something good, authority, living under someone's authority, and it twists it. It's the same thing which happened with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? God didn't really say, did he? You don't really want to say it under him. You want to be like him. If you have children or spend any time with children, you see this really clearly, don't you? Um, don't. You see him around my three-year-old. I love him very much. But he actually drives around the bend sometimes, often. Uh, bedtimes are especially hard at the moment. They always have been with him, really. And he tries as hard as he can to control everything. Um, this is a true story. This resulted in a meltdown this week. Um, I was sitting on bed reading stories to him. We get to read two books, then we read our Bible, then we pray. Uh, eventually, he chose his two books. That took a while. Uh, but then this was the key issue. Daddy didn't place the two books in exactly the precise place that Duncan wanted them. Turns out it was on my lap. That wasn't clear. And so utter meltdown, tantrum, chaos, back sort of half an hour in our bedtime process. You, you see... Dunks felt he was the centre of attention there. He felt he was the centre of the world. And he must learn that he has been born into a world of authority and he is not it. He doesn't like that. He thinks he's the centre of the universe and we must all do his bidding. And, and in many ways, all of us are still a bit like that. We have a natural resistance to authority ever since before. But our job as parents, me and Caroline, is to show him what good authority looks like. 
that he can see authority as good. It's a key part of parenting. It's Christian parenting, so it's fundamental. If we're ever to sit under God's authority, they see that. To show our children that they're not in charge. And we must be reminded regularly of that as well. So when we come to these verses, we need to ask ourselves here, if we're truly trusting in Jesus, are we letting him be in total control of our lives? Are we willingly submitting to his authority? Because this is what's going on in this short passage today. We've seen Jesus' authority to heal. He's healed three outsiders to Matthew's audience here. A leper, the ultimate outsider, and then a Roman centurion, a Gentile, and a woman, Peter's mother. And now he turns and he speaks to sort of the people on the fringes who are following him, the religious really in some ways. In many ways he speaks to many of us. We're sitting in this room, we say we trust in Jesus, he's speaking to us. Let me read you a passage from a book called The Cost of Discipleship by a German called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There he is, great glasses. This is what he says. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. This man here, he wrote that in Germany in 1937, four years after Hitler had come to power. Uh, Most Christians in Germany applauded Hitler, applauded his charismatic and inspirational leadership, we find out when we read history. But a small minority, though, Bonhoeffer led them. They opposed Hitler. He became a leader of what was known as the Confessing Christians. His stand against Hitler, his stand against his policies eventually led to his death, his execution, just a few weeks before the end of the war. His stand, his obedience, his trust in Christ, his faith in Christ was extremely costly. And today, this cheap grace, this this grace which looks to take what is seen as good from God without submitting to his authority, I think we can see it in so many places. I know when I looked in my life, I think I can see it. It's, It's seen when... Christianity is portrayed as as simply a satisfying life. And it definitely is. But it's not just an attractive lifestyle. It's seen when uh, Christians choose the church they'll go to according to what they'll get out of it, not where they can serve. It's seen when we ignore certain teachings in the Bible which seem uncomfortable to us in certain ways. We just pick and choose the bits we like. You see, we, we look to water and temper down what Jesus says about our obedience, about our use of our money, about our decision making. We do that in every place of our lives so often. But Jesus' authority is seen in action here in Matthew 8 and 9. And now in this passage, we need to listen to his words. These words are meant to affect how we live. 
And the question today is, will we listen to his words? Will we read them at face value as if Jesus is speaking to us and be challenged by them? Firstly, notice verse 18 with me. Look down with me. Verse 18. Uh, what type of leader does this? It's bizarre. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. See what he's doing? He's been teaching to a mass of people. And then he orders them to the other side of the lake. Jesus is not after casual followers and fans. I was fortunate enough, I was at the Open last week. Open golf, if you like golf. And I spent a few days as a fanboy following around Tiger Woods. It was great. But Jesus is not after fans who just follow him, who just marvel at what he's doing. He's after true and real followers. So he went to the other side of a lake. He's subtly asking a question to those who are, are surrounding, those who have seen all that's going on. He's saying, will you come with me? Over to the other side of a lake, outside of sort of Jewish territory. Jesus is looking for disciples. And in what he says in these next four verses, we see him tell us through sort of the negative what it means to be a true disciple. A true follower who lives under his authority. We're going to see two things. Firstly, how to be a true disciple. Verses 19 and 20. Don't expect comfort. This is what happened. Then a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's going on here? Because at face value, it seems like a pretty good response from his teacher of the law, doesn't it? I will follow you wherever you go. It sounds like good commitment. Well, there's a few clues here. Uh, Matthew gives us a clue that this man may not have yet truly grasped who Jesus was. Anyone just shout out, what does this man call Jesus? Put it down with me, verse 19. What does he call Jesus? Teacher. He calls him teacher. Rabbi, it's respectful. Rabbi, teacher, respectful. Five times in Matthew, we see Jesus referred to as teacher. Interesting, in each of those times, it's not a sign of commitment. Anyone remember or can look down? How did the centurion address Jesus? Verse six, if you look at it, chapter eight, someone shout it out again. How did the centurion address Jesus? Lord. Lord. Jesus' response to this man, we don't maybe hear the whole conversation here, shows us that he saw this man's heart. There's no congratulations, there's no encouragement, there's no assurance. This man may well have been well-meaning. It's really interesting. This is the first person of high standing in the Jewish community who has encountered Jesus. He's seemingly humble enough to speak to this sort of wacky itinerant preacher with respect. Teacher, rapper. Despite this being a teacher of the law, this man hold, held far higher religious qualifications than Jesus did. But obviously Jesus, as we see in his response, senses this man as being a bit hasty in his commitment to him. He's not thinking about it. Either he doesn't really understand what he's saying or he doesn't really mean it. Some commentators will say that the scribe, the teacher of law, is really just saying he'll follow Jesus to the next part of his journey. That's what he's saying. He's not stating a lifelong commitment here. And I think Jesus' response shows this. It seems a bit cryptic, doesn't it? We see foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus saying? He's not saying it's sinful to own a home, which is good. He himself had one before he started itinerant ministry. He was a carpenter. He worked a conventional job until he was 30. What he is saying and what he can obviously see in this man's heart is that he needs to reiterate that to follow Jesus means everything must be submitted to him. That we must be prepared to give up everything. 
And he's also reminding us here that we live in a world totally inhospitable to Jesus. Inhospitable to his people. So the call here is to not be hasty in our commitment. Look again how Jesus deals with these large crowds. If you look at it again and again in Matthew as you read it, it's interesting. He always leaves them. He builds a crowd and then he tries to put some distance between himself and them. He he seems so aware of how people operate. He's aware of sort of crowd psychology. The danger of people getting whipped up in emotion in the crowd. It can be a danger, can't it, to sort of Christian camps and conferences if we're not careful. Wonderful things, but it can be a danger. We get whipped up in the emotion of it all. Jesus here wants us to seriously consider our following of him, not just be whipped up in the crowd. Here he's saying this. He's saying we must be prepared to give up the idol of security. But right, we feel to have a foxhole, the right of safety. We must be prepared to give up the idol of comfort, the right we feel to have our own nest. We must be prepared to give up the idol of predictability. At the end of the day, the fox and the bird know they'll return to their homes. Jesus' ministry is an example of unpredictability. He didn't know where he was going to lay his head each night. And by stating, as he does in his reply, that he is the son of man, Jesus is pointing towards Daniel 7, a, a passage this man, the teacher of law, would have known really well. A passage which says the Son of Man will go to the cross and give up everything for the sake of us. He's saying to this man, he's saying to the crowd, he's saying to us, you followed me for miracles. Maybe you followed me for for fame to say I was there. I saw Tiger. But for power, for comfort. But I will be despised and rejected by men. To follow Jesus is not to share in fame or power, or comforts, at least not yet. First it is to share in sacrifice, to share in suffering, and share in hostility. There's there's sort of no small print with Jesus here. He's laying it right out front and centre. He's not hiding it. There was a real cost last week, wasn't there, to the centurion coming to Jesus last week. A, A loss of face, a loss of reputation. This is a Roman centurion, and he's coming to this itinerant Jewish preacher saying, can you heal him? A real loss of face. And the question for us here today again is, are we willing to lose in order to gain? Because as I've been challenged by the passage, I looked at that, I think it's so easy, isn't it? We live with such a pull to live a comfortable life. It's a hard pull, a pull to live a comfortable life, a safe life. Every advert we watch is, is basically telling us life could be a little bit better, could be a little more satisfying, could be a little more comfortable if we get X or do X. The underlying principles of our culture are directly opposed to what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying we must be prepared to give it all up for his sake. If that's what God's call is on our life, if he asks something of us, we must be willing to obediently submit it to him. He's saying that to be a disciple is to count the cost. This isn't a promised life of comfort. Sorry if you're coming today and hoping for a message to puff you up in some ways. These are Jesus' words. He's laying it out. Like I said, there's no small print. He's, he makes it clear elsewhere. We need to be like the man who finds the treasure in the field, gives it all up to buy that field. It's worth it. It's not just cost, it's worth it. And we'll only be willing to live this way if we truly trust Jesus, if we have a larger vision of what is going on, if we can say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not talking about us being masochistic and just suffering for the sake of it. But he says it's worth it. 
as we give up what we need to follow Christ. I was thinking about this passage and I thought it may be helpful. I had a number of examples of people, of situations popped up in my head. Of this kind of action where people have not swapped the comfortable way. They've listened to the Holy Spirit's urging to make challenging decisions for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Get there in a minute. It's close family friends of mine who went through the painful, complicated process of adoption. They brought another child into their home. They disrupted their family dynamic. They increased their costs financially and emotionally in order to love and care for another. There's a man I met last week on my Bible college course who's recently given up a very high, powerful, profile job. A position in his profession in order to now be a ministry trainee within his church. Help them with his expertise. There's the costly decision of family friends of mine who chose to give birth to a heavily disabled child against the advice of their doctors rather than consider a termination. There's a family I know well who deliberately choose to live in inner city Birmingham in an area they feel called to minister in where they said to me the other week that the schools for their children are dire, that the safety in their road is really not guaranteed and yet they live there to reach their neighbours with the gospel. There's a family who recently I know have had to leave their church as they hold really strong convictions about human sexuality in contrast to the rest of their church totally countercultural to where the world is. They long to follow Jesus and his word totally, and it's causing them great pain that they've had to leave. There was a close friend you saw him flash up there, who some of us knew, who chose to follow Christ, knowing what it would mean for him, a Muslim family background. They disowned him, they kicked him out. He lost it all. Abused by his family, he gave it all up to follow Christ. I could name more. I hope maybe in your mind as you think of examples, you go, I've seen that in people's lives. In your own life as well, you'll see it. People who have counted the cost, who have listened to the words of Jesus here and elsewhere where he says it will be costly if you're truly going to follow me in this world. It's not a hospitable place for Christ and for his followers. He's reminding that of us here. Me and Si were chatting a few days ago. We were reflecting on this and we were talking about how does we impact some of our, our thing around town church? And we're talking particularly around what it means about our call and we feel strongly about to go and make disciples, to go with the gospel to the people of Vista. It was a helpful reminder that, friends, sharing our lives and our faith with people is costly in numerous ways. It's costly in terms of time, nights out in the week, time away with friends, investing in people's lives for the sake of the gospel. It's costly in terms of money, maybe joining a society or a club, Fuel costs, paying for a holiday away with friends, whatever it might be. It's often costly emotionally as we invest in the mess of people's lives, as we face rejection when we speak of Jesus, as we walk with people as they suffer. Following Jesus will be costly in terms of how we spend our time and our money. It means sacrifice in terms of how we envision our marriages, our time with families, our comforts. Are we willing to listen to this challenge from Jesus? It is costly. But remember what I said at the start, it is worth it. By following Jesus, we do not use them. All those examples I just mentioned, none of them were complaints. They would all say they have gained immeasurably from those decisions in many different ways. The Lord has blessed them in so many ways. 
Sometimes the, the gain may just be God working in our hearts as we have our comfort stripped away. You saw him there a minute. Some of you will know him well. It's my good friend John. He used to be part of town church. His family kicked him out for trusting in Jesus. Literally kicked him out the door. Heavily disabled. I spoke with him yesterday on the phone. And I said to him, I said I was preaching around this. And I said, John, any regrets? Any regrets of putting your trust in Jesus? So literally he said, he said, no. Johnny, it's been awful at times. And he's telling me some stories. So sad. No contact with his family. Just abuse from his family whenever they speak to him. So sad. And yet I have Jesus. I have security. I have hope. I have joy. He said on the phone to me, I have everything in Jesus, despite having lost so much. This life, friends, is not just for superheroes. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for the super godly. It's for all of us. A few chapters later, Jesus says this. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The call of Jesus is not an easy one. But, but in his kindness here and elsewhere, he lets us know up front what it's like. And he shows us that it is worth it in so many ways in this life and the life to come. That living under his authority, that sacrificing for the sake of others is worth immeasurably more than the life of comfort our society is calling us to live under every single minute of every single day. And the encouragement, we know that he himself helps us to live in this way. You may say, I couldn't do that. God, by his spirit, will help us to count the cost. That's the first part. How do we be a true disciple? Don't expect comfort. Secondly, don't drag your feet. This will be shorter. If our first disciple was too hasty, this next one is too slow. Read down with me again. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It seems pretty harsh from Jesus, doesn't it? Commentators have landed in various places to exactly what's going on here. Uh, One option is the face value reading of it. We kind of go, this man's father has just died and he's literally asking just to type the final bits before following Jesus. He's kind of got a shovel in his hand. He's going to go very great. Every single commentator goes, it's definitely not going on. If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be even anywhere near Jesus at that point. So they most seem to agree this. They say, he seems to be saying, Lord, let me wait until my father has died. Until I've inherited the family, until I've got all my affairs in order, then I'll follow you. Let me sort things out first, Jesus. Jesus often uses blunt lines like this to provoke, doesn't he, as you read it through the Gospels. Following Jesus always means leaving something. You can't just continue as you were. And Jesus' reply tells us this, that following him is to take precedence over everything else. Jesus, just just let me wait until I've got a bit more time to work things out. Jesus, let me wait until I've got a more stable job, then I'll follow you. Jesus, let me wait until my kids have grown up, then I'll have some space to think about it. Jesus, let me wait until I've finished school or have my time at university, and then I'll commit to following you. No, the the call here from Jesus is not to delay, to put your trust in him now. Just let me say to you, if you do not yet trust in Jesus, what are you waiting for? And if you are a Christian, what are you waiting for? To be obedient, to follow Jesus. It's all about the next step towards him by his grace. Is there something which he's nagging at you now going, yep, don't quiet that voice, that spirit, the spirit speaking to you. Take that next step. 
Jesus came to bring life. His response reminds us of this, that there seems to be some wordplay going on. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. When you look at the language on it, he, he's saying, turn away from anything which doesn't bring life. I bring life. Turn away from empty things which stop us following Jesus. And instead, join Jesus who died a death for us, which brought life. The world we live in, as you remind us, is full of death. It's the absolute statistic, isn't it? And yet for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, there is the promise of eternal life. And he's saying nothing is more valuable than everlasting life. Nothing is worth delaying the call of Jesus for. So what are you waiting for? Follow Jesus today. Let me close. The teacher of the law was too quick to respond. He hadn't counted the cost. The disciple here was was too slow in wanting to follow Jesus. But Jesus is totally up front of what the Christian life is like for us here. It's interesting. What we don't see in these interactions is how these people then reacted to Jesus' replies. And we don't know. Did they follow Jesus? Did they not? We don't know. I think that's because this passage here, put here by Matthew, is to provoke a response in us. In the original readers and thus now, how will I respond? How will I respond to this passage here, to these questions from Jesus? It's a hard word from Jesus. And you may be listening in, you may be going, yeah, yeah, but Johnny, isn't the gospel, isn't Jesus all about grace? Isn't that the message? And I go, yes, yes again. But because it is all about grace, Jesus has the authority to challenge us and speak to us in this way. If the gospel was like a two-sided contract, we'd have room to bargain with God, wouldn't we? If we could go, Lord, I've done this, I've done this now, so I won't do this for you, or I will do that for you. I do a little, he does a little. If it's like that, then there'd be room for manoeuvre here. But, but no, grace is gloriously one-sided. I just bring my need. I, I bring my sin. I bring nothing. And so there are no limits to what God can ask of us. In Matthew 10, later on, Jesus is going to say, freely you've received. Now freely give. The right response of grace is to follow Jesus' whole heartedly, whatever that may mean. And we can only respond in this way. We can only respond how Jesus longed for the teacher of the law and the disciple to respond. If we realise we can only do it by his grace and his strength. I think that's the attitude the Lord is aiming for in these two responses. There's a mission society in South Africa once wrote to David Livingston. He said, David, have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to send other men to join you. Livingston replied, if you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. He later wrote in his journal on one occasion concerning his selfless life. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paying back a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Let's take a minute now. Maybe read back over those words from Jesus now and reflect and respond in prayer to where God has been nudging and challenging you. And then we'll see.